In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As our Lord rides into Jerusalem, and thus also to his cross, he is weeping, while Jerusalem is rejoicing. He is not weeping for himself, however. He is weeping for them. And in a sense, he's weeping precisely because they are rejoicing. Because all they really care about is money and politics. And they think that he has come to give them what they want. He weeps because this city of peace knows not what makes for its peace. Indeed, that's one of the ironies lying just beneath the surface, that within the name itself, Jerusalem, is the word Salem from Shalom, which means peace. Of course, we ourselves as Californians are no strangers to this very irony. We have up to the north Los Angeles, the city of angels, to the south, San Diego, St. Diego, and nearby, San Clemente, named after St. Clement, and here in Capistrano Beach, named after St. John of Capistrano. I wonder if in a thousand years, historians will look back and think that we must have been an exceedingly godly people. I don't think so, because the same irony that is hidden within the name Jerusalem is hidden within the names of our cities as well. Matthew records Jesus' lamentation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, city of peace who murders the prophets and stones the messengers whom God sends to her. But then hear what our Lord says. How I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. What an incredible statement of the gracious attitude of God and the gracious attitude of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Where does he preach grace and grace alone? Everywhere, but here specifically, to the very city who murders his prophets and stones his messengers, he says, even so, I would long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. But you would not have it. Thus, Jerusalem becomes an image, an icon of self-security, of presumption, of hard-hearted impenitence, having her eyes set only on the blessings of the world and utterly missing the visitation of her God, the visitation of the one who came to give her eternal blessings. Indeed, she thinks she's the city of God when in fact she's corrupt and rotten to her very core, to her very heart. 
The heart of Jerusalem, her temple, has within it money changers and those who buy and sell, showing that her very heart has been corrupted by the love of money, the love of earthly pleasures. Her heart, instead of a house of prayer, has become a den of thieves. Once more, all she can see is money and politics and what problems of this life she thinks she needs solved. And thus the everlasting Savior is hidden from her. It's one of the great spiritual ironies of our fallen condition that the worse we become spiritually, the better we think we are. The more you think yourself to be a good person, the less you think yourself to need a savior. The world, and truly hell itself, is packed with people who believe and believe themselves to be very good. The world perishes in precisely this self-security. Our Lord weeps over Jerusalem because if she only knew what was coming, she wouldn't have been making merry and planning for the next good time. She would have wept and repented and received her Savior. And all the same is true for the entire world. One of the greatest pastoral theologians of a thousand years, Gregory, preaches such a wonderful sermon to his congregation, I simply want to read part of that sermon to you. He says, As we see Jerusalem destroyed and the temple a mass of ruins, do we not perceive in these things the image of our own spiritual destruction? Or at least the potential of our own spiritual destruction. Almighty God visits the soul of the sinner in many different ways. Now he announces by his ministers great and divine truths. Now he chastises the souls with the scourges of his justice. Again, he meets the soul in a wonderful manner with his richest blessings. Acting thus and making use of different means, God endeavors to convince the soul of eternal truths so long unknown to it. When the word of God is resisted by the soul, when the severity of his punishments cannot humble it or conquer its hardness, when all these means have been useless, then the infinitely merciful God sometimes pours out his generous blessings and opens his fatherly hand that the ingratitude of the sinful soul might perhaps be put to shame and finally return to him. But should this soul willfully refuse to recognize the time of its visitation, then God finally gives it over to its enemies with whom it must suffer the pains of damnation. 
as it went for Jerusalem, so it will go for us if we abide in a false sense of security. Who is this gracious God who tries in so many different ways to visit our souls and that for the sake of our salvation? Who is this Christ who weeps and mourns over a city of unbelieving murderers? It is the very same Christ who has wept for you and for me and perhaps is even weeping up to this very moment. It is this Christ who in pure love and unworldly humility bowed his head and received the crown of thorns that he might save you and gave his hands and feet to those merciless nails that he might save you, gave his beard to those who would pluck it, his back to those who would smite it, his entire body to the cross, that by his suffering he might set you free from all suffering, that by his death he might set you free from death forever. Who is this Christ Jesus? It is he who has also come to visit you, who baptized you before you probably even knew your name. It is he who has visited you in your conscience. It is he who has afflicted you in many and various ways that you might turn and return to him. It is he who has bound up your wounds and set before you the promises of his love and the sure and certain fact that you are in the palm of his hand. He knows his own. He knows you by name. And his plans for you will not fail. One of our great Lutheran theologians, John Gerhardt, writes that God so orders the economy of grace that we might have assurance of salvation, and yet not in such a way that we become self-secure, presumptuous, and rebellious. He goes on to say that inside of each one of us is a great and profound enemy our very selves, and so much more than all other enemies because of their close proximity and because we simply can't be anywhere without that enemy. While outside of us lies the whole world with all its temptations, with its false facade that this is what normalcy is and this is what you should go ahead and do, but also above us, the devil himself, greater than each one of us, greater than all of us combined in power. Christ would not have us handed over to these enemies, but rather, in the strength of God, by the power of his cross and the power of his all-sufficient sin-cleansing blood, 
he would have us fight and indeed in due time overcome such enemies. But such enemies cannot be overcome merely by harboring a false and superficial sense of self-security. Rather, these may only be overcome by constant and incessant war. In this sense, what makes for our peace is constant warfare. We rest in heaven. We fight the good fight of faith here. And we will overcome, as the scriptures say, with the word of Jesus and with his own precious blood. For in truth, there is no other peace than that peace which comes in his blood. Peace with God and peace with one another. For only through his blood have all sins been put away. So then we must let our Lord's words, but also his tears, move our hearts. Let them be a warning to us, lest we become hardened and self-secure, focused only on this world, on money and politics and whatever happiness we think we need. After all, if love of mammon could infiltrate the very temple of God, how much more our own hearts. If false security and hardness of heart could infiltrate the very city of God, then how much our own souls. Let us turn then to our Savior and behold him with arms stretched out upon the cross, to receive each and every one of us, no matter how great our sins or our shame, no matter how great the sins of others against us, he receives us still. Whoever comes to me, he says, I will by no means cast out. In Christ we see and have divine love, divine forgiveness, and the very heart of God opened to us. In him we find true healing for our souls, and we find a future that stretches far beyond this temporary life and this fallen world. His own promise that in due time all things will be made new. If you have not been baptized, be baptized. If you have not believed, believe. If you have not repented, or if it's been a long time, repent. If you have not opened your heart to God, let it be open. If you have not prayed as you ought, set about prayer once more. If you have not wept for your sins or if it's been a long time, then find a place of solitude and weep. If you have not sought the Lord with all your heart, it's time to seek him once more. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
yes, abounding in steadfast love. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit,